Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. Do not underestimate the power of the independent open cloud for developers. Yes, I'm talking about Linode. Linode is our cloud of choice and it's the home of changelog.com. What we love most about Linode is their independence and their commitment to open cloud. Open cloud means being unencumbered by outside investment and maximizing value for the community, not shareholders. And that's exactly what Linode represents. No vendor lock-in, open at every layer. If you want to learn more, head to linode.com slash open. Again, linode.com slash open. Welcome to Go Time, a podcast where we discuss everything under the sun of Go's expanding influence. Cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, and yes, the Go language itself. If you're not following at GoTimeFM on Twitter, you're missing out on notifications for the live show, clips and highlights from past episodes, links and repos from around the community, retweets of ridiculous things Matt Ryer says, and more. Follow us. You won't regret it. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Ryer. Today we're talking about publishing and programming and we have special guest Peter Cooper of Cooper Press who published the famous Go Weekly newsletter. Hello Peter, welcome. Hi, fantastic. Uh, Looking forward to this. Great, yeah, it's great to have you. We're also joined by a couple of regulars, the kind that you'd see at your local tavern, for example. (laughs) Johnny Borsico and John Calhoun. Hello. Hello. Hey Matt. How's it going? Pretty good. I feel like that was directed at me. No, no, no. I'm not trying to make any suggestions whatsoever. (laughs) Peter, so thank you very much for joining us. This is actually the first time we've met, but I've been following the Go newsletter since I think it started, which was when? Well, I didn't start it. So um, a guy called Matthew Cottingham started it back in, I think it was around 20, literally in really early days, like 2012, somewhere around then. And he did about 40 issues of it before I took over. So I didn't take over until the start of 2015. Right. So, yeah, it was going a little bit longer than that. Yeah. But it's become kind of such a staple, hasn't it, really, for the Go community? I mean, I know it's a a place where I go to find out what's going on. It's definitely one of the big resources. How's that happened? How do you think that came about? Well, I kind of built on what Matthew had already done. Like, so he did the hard work at the start. So I've you know got a history in doing these newsletters for other different topics as well, particularly Ruby Weekly, which is the community that I'm sort of originally from, as still very much a Rubyist even now, um, although I do sort of play around with every language to a certain extent. But uh, I had to, you know, kind of do that work and I had the, you know, I knew the people in the community and I could build things up and he was kind of in a similar position with the Go community. So I managed to sort of put together a deal with him he didn't want to do it anymore and make that sort of weekly commitment because it is a pretty (laughs) big thing to kind of publish something every single week and uh, because I was already familiar with doing it I got in touch with him I said oh you know I've noticed you kind of missed a few issues here and there and he's like yeah I need to you know kind of focus on other things in my life and uh, I took it over and we kind of 
came to an arrangement and yeah that's kind of where it all just comes from it's uh but i kind of built on that initial core of people that he had you know originally brought together and i can't remember how many subscribers it had when we bought it but i think it was like within like four digits it was like four or five thousand it wasn't huge but it was enough that there was something to build upon so i'm wondering sort of what got it on your radar or was it <laughs> i'm curious did, did the newsletter you're so into newsletters <laughs> every time i think of you i think of newsletters is it the fact that there was another programming language newsletter out there that sort of piqued your interest or did, did go was the first thing that sort of drew you in it's a little bit of a mixture of both so i always keep an eye on what newsletters there are out there but nowadays i can't keep track because nearly every single person's got one for their own blog and everything but uh, at the time it was a lot less common you could you know count sort of like a hundred different programming related newsletters and you know that would have been pretty much all the ones regularly actually doing anything as opposed to thousands now and yeah i i was interested in go because i've just always been interested in when there's something new coming along in the programming space so that was also true you know when i first got into ruby back in 2004 i saw something about ruby on rails on slash dot and kind of investigated it and turned my nose up at it for a bit and eventually got into it and there's a whole story behind that but this is true for like most technologies that come along and when go first came along and i first you know saw those posts that the uh, the go guys were doing it struck me like because like, if you go back even further from you know ruby and all the rest i was originally a c programmer essentially um, i sort of learned that when i was a teenager in the 90s and sort of spent a lot of time with c and pascal uh, and doing x86 and doing some demo coding and that type of thing and Go just really appealed to me because I could kind of see the pragmatism of languages like, perhaps Python is a better example than Ruby in this case. Um, although the way I code Ruby is in a very Pythonish kind of way, I must admit. Uh, but I kind of saw that practicality, but mixed with the low level kind of aspects that Go gives you. Um, and it just was so readable. Like I know that's one of the goals of the project is to, to make a readable language, but it just kind of struck me. So I was like, I'm interested in this. I want to kind of, get involved in some way so i did actually start including things in some of the other newsletters that i was doing saying oh you know here's go and this is a kind of cool thing like you know don't switch to it because i'm doing a ruby newsletter but it's still kind of cool anyway of course many people like uh, mark bates for example who was from the ruby world did switch to go and now he runs what the buffalo project yeah and he's not as i hear he's not welcome back in the ruby community at all <laughs> well i don't know about that but uh, no, yeah i'm sure that's not really true uh, <laughs> But uh, yes, I know I'm a big fan of Marx, but um, yeah, a lot of people from the Ruby world did actually kind of come over to Go, perhaps not as many from other languages. Uh, like I think a lot of Pythonistas went into Go in particular, but uh, you know, a few Rubyists did and I was interested, but I wasn't interested enough to like become a full-time Go developer or anything like that. Uh, I did have a publisher approach me very early on because they knew about my work writing Ruby books and they're like, oh, we want someone to write a, you know, beginner's go book i think it might have been manning i can't remember i think it was manning um, or addison wesley and i kind of went into talks with them and i just decided against it because i didn't actually want to learn a whole new language and get that deep into it i was happy with ruby but it put it on my radar i was learning enough go that i kind of knew how it operated what its ethos was and i knew that once i was doing the publishing that it was something that i would want to cover at some point or another without you know, necessarily being a Go expert, I knew enough about it that I could objectively look at the language and, and know how it ticked. It's funny, I was also, I used to do a lot of Ruby and I knew of Mark, I think even back then from the the Ruby community, he did a couple of books on it as well mm. um, and some posts and whatever. But it's interesting, like 
there's a lot of people that seems to be that are interested or people that were interested in Ruby and also have a kind of shared interest in Go. But if, it's funny, if you think of the two languages, they're very different, aren't they? They're almost opposites in some way. In some ways. Yeah. I think it's because a language like Ruby attracts people that are... I mean, just discount like all the people that are beginners, essentially, that have just come to Ruby as their first language. Ruby otherwise attracts people that are kind of looking for something a little bit different. That was definitely true in 2004 when um, David Heimeyer Hansen kind of came to it and began working on Rails, um, or as it was Basecamp, which then he kind of extracted into Rails. But he kind of came to it almost like as a progressive developer. I don't know if this is the right word. It might be a little bit politically charged to use, but I kind of see people like DHH and maybe some of us as being reasonably progressive. And that means that if we see a new language or a new thing, we'll look at it and we'll take it on its own merits and say, yeah, this kind of fits in for this task. And I would use it if I wanted to do that type of work. So that's true of Go for me, for example. Like I would use Go if I need that kind of low-level access, the concurrency, but I don't need something that is quite as low-level as C. Like I want some kind of guards around what I'm doing. Um, I would pick Go. I wouldn't pick Rust because I just don't get on with that language at all. I tried it and I was just like, nah. Like Go feels a lot more C-like to me. C with the good parts and the bad parts removed. But I think there's a lot of progressive developers who come to a language on its own merits, as I say. So the fact that it's not the same as Ruby, that's fine. Like, if I want to go back and I want to build something like a, a Rails app, I can come back to Rails. It, I don't have to just think, oh, I'm just doing Go now. I have to do it as a Buffalo app. Now, some people do, like perhaps Mark, for example. But I'm happy switching between languages. But maybe that's just kind of an aspect of the work I do. But uh, yeah, I can just take it on its own merits. Yeah, I think that's quite healthy for everyone to think like that. It's very easy to get into your, uh, like a little world and an echo chamber and then you start seeing tech wars and things. And yeah, of course, sometimes it's good to choose one thing, sometimes another. I want to say that I come from the world where like we used to do inline code a lot. So this was definitely true in the Perl world to a certain extent, which was the language I focused on before Ruby. I was very heavily into Perl and it was quite common to sort of drop into doing some inline, you know, putting other languages in just because it was kind of easy to do. But going back even further, when I was a Pascal developer in the sort of the 90s and I was doing demo coding and stuff, it was really, really common in that space to drop back and do inline x86 for setting up your modex screens and, you know, sort of blitting pixels all over the place and all this type of stuff. And uh, even to draw like lines on the screen, you know, doing the sort of the, the interpolation of the pixel positions and stuff like that, you would drop down into x86 and it just made it a lot more performant on the machines of the day, which are very, very slow. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's something that I would associate with maybe even with older developers. I don't know if that's fair or unfair, but the idea of just seeing new languages and jumping backwards and forwards and taking on bits and pieces from other languages just seemed very natural to me. So when you're jumping back and forth, especially with like a newsletter, I feel like it would be challenging to pick articles and things like that that you want to share with people when these languages kind of have very different ideas of what is correct or what is like idiomatic for that language. Um, you know, like in Rails, it's or Ruby in general, it's it's okay to have this magic and a lot of other stuff. Whereas, like in Go, that's the complete opposite. If you you know publish an article where it's like, look at all this magical stuff I did, people are going to react a little bit differently. I guess does it like make it harder to find you know good articles and things like that to share with people when you're looking at the publishing side? Now that you've kind of explained it like that, I kind of uh, get your point. <laughs> but uh, I, th I think this is one of the things actually where people talk to me and they they approach me at conferences and stuff and they're like 
how do you even do this? Like, how, you know, I can't imagine, like, doing one newsletter every single week, let alone, like, 10 or 11 or whatever it is. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's just easy. Like, it's just what I do. And I think I've just kind of realized it's actually something that I just am innately good at, like, just through practice and persistence and having done it a lot of times. It's a bit like when you see people that are really good at Rubik's Cubes, you know, the cubes with the colored squares on each side. And there are people that can look at that and then just go, they just go with their fingers and bam they've solved the puzzle and i look at it and i'm like i don't even understand where to begin like and how you even get to that point and maybe to a certain extent and i don't like to i'm quite a modest guy but maybe to an extent i'm kind of doing that when i'm putting together these newsletters i'm kind of looking at a lot of stuff but i can keep those separate narratives in my head and i can just do it like a rubik's cube and bam i produce you know what i need to produce and it's just correct you know, I'm not saying obviously I'm perfect. I do make mistakes. and But as time goes by, I tend to get better and better. And I just seem to keep it in my head. But yeah, just saying natural skill might not be the most uh, attractive answer, but it's kind of where I'm at. <laughs> so what would you say if I told you that as a publisher, right, with many readers, right, many subscribers, that you hold power, right, over the ideas, right, that are disseminated, um, within the you know any given of the communities in which your newsletter circulate, right? And and how do you do you think about it that way, or or is this another aspect where we're kind of getting you to sort of realize it? <laughs> I kind of get the point. I probably don't realize necessarily to what extent because my interactions with the different communities tends to be reasonably detached. You know, I only attend a certain number of events just because I travel extremely poorly, so. I don't often get to kind of walk the streets, as it were, and hear from you know readers in the flesh very often. Uh, I don't even do calls like this very often because uh, I you know I tend to find things like this quite difficult to do. So I operate in a very detached kind of way. But I see other people do very similar things. So like industry analysts, for example, that's a really interesting can of worms to kind of dig into if you ever get bored one day. Like if you look at what some of these industry analysts do uh, at places like Gartner, for example, uh, they write, you know, entire papers about how different companies are using JavaScript or what web frameworks developers are using in the real world type stuff. And then they offer these for sale for hundreds of dollars or, you know, thousand dollar subscriptions to big companies. And I'm sure some of you have had run-ins with people from those types of places where they're like grilling you with questions at least the people i talk to who work at startups are like oh yeah we've you know my boss told me i've got to speak to this analyst and he just gave me all these pointless questions and produced this crappy report and i hear that a lot so but the reason i kind of am okay with doing it is because i do actually code and i've worked with customers before and i've built you know, projects with software and I've sold them and all that type of stuff. So I hopefully I feel like I'm, I've got enough skin in the game. You know, I've released libraries. I, you know, build libraries and to do open source. I've got enough skin in the game that I kind of hopefully understand what that power is and how it relates to normal developers, even though I don't necessarily have the same day-to-day -day developer experience as everyone else. It's really funny you mentioned that and you mentioned that you sort of are somewhat detached from the communities. It really doesn't feel like that when you look at the newsletter. So I wonder how the quality remains. I mean, it's always been very good. Sometimes some of my articles have slipped through. So. <laughs> <laughs> but on the whole, they are generally, I mean, how do you keep that quality? It must be a difficult thing to do in the first place and also sustain. 
I think part of it is that if the quality ever slips, I tend to get people telling me it has. So if I've included an article that is just really, really bad, and it's happened a few times, not I don't think we've go. Um, I've made a couple of factual errors with Go that I've been pulled up on, such as when I think I said the Go modules uh, proposal had been accepted by the core Go team a week before they actually accepted it. I had some people pull me up about that. <laughs> they just said something like, uh, oh, yeah, we're like we're close to agreeing it. And I kind of went with, like, oh, it's all been agreed. Um, so, you know, occasionally I have errors like that. And occasionally I will link to something that isn't quite right. Uh, but I tend to get people reach out and say, look, why did you link to that? Like, it sucks, blah, 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 blah. And I tend to learn from that experience. But I don't know. You know, you could say it's luck. You could say it's skill. Yeah, it's just like trying to ask someone, you know, ask a footballer, how is it that you score those goals? Like, it's hard for them to break down and think about the kind of the meta processes that they use. And I do spend time thinking about that type of thing. And I've realized actually this, when I'm trying to find other people to help me curate the newsletters, is that actually it's very hard to describe the process to someone else and get the right results back out. And that is actually why I do lead most of the publications, bar one or two that other people edit, almost entirely why I do lead them because I've really struggled to find anyone that I can instill those kind of skills into and maybe that's you know why I'm sort of one of a very few people that are doing this sort of thing at this sort of scale week in week out like it's just the thing that I'm good at yeah you're almost like a search engine that was built by natural selection somehow (laughs) (laughs) and you're highly tuned to that particular thing but Whatever it is, it does work. And it isn't an easy thing for sure. So No, I mean, yeah. it, it kind of relates to a lot of things in my life. You know, and I might sort of cover this a little bit more in depth later. But uh, one of the things that I sort of discovered in the last few years is I was actually diagnosed as being autistic. And actually, like, in that process, I've managed to reflect back on a lot of the things that I've done in the past or how I've acted and how I see the world. And it really kind of fits. And I wasn't even going to have a diagnosis for that. It's just something that came out of a separate process I was going through. But I've kind of realized that has actually given me some skills to really pick things up very quickly. So, you know, one of the things that I do, and I'm sure many of us are guilty of this, is like you'll hear about a plane crash in the news and you go onto Wikipedia and you read about the plane that like it was, what it was a Boeing 737 MAX, for example. And you read about the plane, you read about the problems it's had in the past. And then you read about a previous disaster that it's had. And then you see what the correlation is between that disaster and the new one. And then you dig into things about aeronautics. And then like two hours have passed and you've kind of tried to like learn about everything to do with aviation. (laughs) And that type of thing is just like every single day of my life. So when I see something like an article about you know, like a go routine or something like that. I'm immediately thinking like, oh, right, go routines. What's a go routine? How does it relate to green threads in Ruby, let's say? How does it relate to a normal thread in the operating system? What's the correlation? How does the runtime fit in with everything? And I'm kind of always trying to build up and deconstruct all of these ideas, like on a daily basis. Every time I run into a concept, I tend to kind of reconstruct it again, just because I find smashing things down and rebuilding them helps me kind of get a mental grasp on stuff. And I talk to people about this sort of thing and some people are just like, oh, I totally get what you mean. I do the same thing. But then a lot of people are just like, what are you even on about? Like, I can't even keep up with what you're saying. You're speaking at 500 miles an hour. So yeah, it's complicated. It's probably what I've realized. But I'm just so big on absorbing concepts and learning things that even if I do make mistakes, I tend to relearn stuff again the next time so quickly that I kind of make up for my past mistakes. That's probably the best way I can put it.
Hi there, this is John Calhoun, one of your GoTime panelists. When I'm not working on GoTime, I create programming courses that help developers level up their Go skills. And one of my more recent courses, Algorithms with Go, is live, and I wanted to invite you to check it out. So it's completely free, and in it we explore how algorithms and data structures work, as well as how to actually implement them in Go code. So if you've ever had an interest in learning about algorithms or data structures, or if you felt like you understand them conceptually but just couldn't nail down that coding part, this course is going to be great for you. We actually dive into coding everything, we work on practice problems, and it's a lot of fun. You can sign up completely free at algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. Uh, again, that's algorithmswithgo.com slash gotime. And don't forget that last slash gotime bit. It helps me keep track of how you found out about the course so that gotime gets credit for referring you. Thanks for listening. When you're looking at all this different stuff, like you're you're working on multiple newsletters and you're exploring different solutions to problems, and as you said, you sort of deep dive into these things. Do you ever look at a problem in one language and think, "Oh, these idiots! They, this is figured out. Like it's solved <laughs> in other languages. Why aren't they just you know following their lead or doing what they're doing?" Because I can imagine looking at different languages that would be frustrating to see one language struggling with something that maybe two other languages just sort of figured out already. I probably see that most on the social side of languages, actually. Um, so I do see it on the technical side, but I kind of, as I mentioned before, I kind of respect the fact that different languages have different wheelhouses and have different levels of responsibilities and how they interact with the world. That's totally fine by me. So I don't necessarily expect, uh, you know, a procedural language to take on lots of functional kind of qualities to it, because I'm happy the fact that there is a separate language that, you know, I can write stuff in F-sharp, for example, and I don't have to think about, oh, let's take all these things out of F-sharp and boil them into another language. Now, I know the JavaScript world is very keen on let's just absorb everything from everywhere. Um, I'm not. But when it comes to the social side, I do see a lot of the same mistakes occurring again and again. That's particularly true in how people interact with each other. So if you were in the Ruby world about six, seven years ago, and I'm not even going to recite a lot of the things that happened because I don't even remember half of them but there was a lot of drama in the community and Rubyists kind of got this reputation of oh there's always a drama kicking off in the Ruby community there's always something happening at a conference or there's always someone having a fight on a GitHub repo and JavaScript developers, or Node developers more accurately, were kind of laughing on Hacker News and saying, oh, yeah, our community is like, you know, we've got all the cool people. Like, we don't have these kind of fights. And I said, you will. Like, <laughs> it's going to happen. Like, we had this in the, you know, in all the different worlds going back where we've had internet communication and we can kind of say stuff quickly. This has always happened. There's always been drama. There's always been problems. And so, of course, it came to the Node world, perhaps in an even more explosive way than the Ruby world. And, you know, we're now even seeing with, like, Rust, for example, there's been low-level drama, I would say. It's been reasonably well handled because that community has such a good grasp on social issues by the people at the top. But they've had issues. You know, I saw someone today saying they're going to quit doing documentation and stuff. It just happens. It's just human nature. And I do see that between the different communities. But I think things actually get better the more we each adopt different languages and we each morph between being different types of developer. So if you're doing Go, but you also do some C, you also do some Ruby, 
because you're participating in all those different communities at once, you can kind of bring back and forth some of the values and keep things going. And then really, it's just a goal of bringing newcomers into the fold and making sure that they adhere by the kind of the community norms. And I think that's something we're seeing a lot more happening now with codes of conduct and things like that. People have really had to start thinking about this and it can't just be some sort of like, you know, old boys club all the time. Um, and that actually a lot of the most valuable contributions in our different communities come from a diverse array of people. And it's taken, especially some of the older people like me, like a really long time to see how that works. Um, but it's really valuable. And I'm really happy that that work is ongoing. Oh, that's really interesting to hear you. The way you talk about the drama in the Ruby world makes it sound like I want to see that on Netflix, mate. <laughs> yeah. The Ruby Diaries. Yeah, Netflix wasn't around quite at the time, but uh, yeah, it would have been good. Yeah, it would have been. Sounds great. Well, it still could happen. We'll see. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. So the advice then to people is to reach out and join other communities as well and go and mix with different people because you'll, mm. you'll be exposed to different ideas and all that. And all that stuff's just good, isn't it? But be happy being a novice. Like, that's one of my big things is that I'm yeah. really, really happy to be the dumbest person in the room because that is often quite, you know, often the case. You know, even though I pick up things quickly, which is perhaps my plus point, I'm quite, that means I'm actually, that makes me more happy and more confident about being the dumbest person because I know that I'm going to look around the room and see all these smart people and be like, oh, I can learn this from them. I can learn this from them. I can learn this from them. Um, and I think everyone can do that to a certain extent, you know, whether or not you're a quick learner or not, like just be happy to go into those spaces and those new communities and be happy to open that first page of a, you know, learning how to use Rust book. Like I'm not going to use Rust like as a full-time development job at all, but I've spent time learning it and I enjoyed it. Like it did teach me some things. So yeah, just do more of that. Yeah, I think that's great advice. I agree with that thing about, you know, the joy in being a novice. It's kind of, there's nostalgia in it, isn't there? Because when we were first kind of getting into computers, it was hard. We didn't know what we were doing. And so it feels nostalgic to me when I encounter new languages or new ideas that I'm not familiar with. And I get to then be that kind of naive person that have to go and figure it out because that's such a fun process you just have to watch out you don't get overwhelmed that's the real issue nowadays because back mm. in say the 80s or the 90s if i was picking up a language you'd have a book that would be it i would have a book i would have no one else who knew anything about the topic <laughs> and that would be it like i would be treating that like a bible i would believe everything that book says that doesn't happen now like if you learn about javascript someone will say oh you should use uh, webpack and someone will say no you should use parcel for packaging stuff and someone will say no you should use this snowpack or whatever it is this new thing that's come out and <laughs> If you can't cope with that, you're going to have problems. And I don't know what the solution is to that, because I must admit, I've not really thought about it, so I just said it. But there is that level of overwhelm, I think, when you come into new topics. And that's something that I think with the newsletters, I've actually become quite good at seeing through that, like, if there's a lot of noisy people saying you must use a certain tool, you must use go routines for absolutely everything like i can look through that and see like well i know just historically that what everyone is suggesting at one period of time <laughs> is not going to be cool in five years time so maybe i can get ahead of the curve just by not doing it i mean that's <laughs> i'm kind of exaggerating a little bit there but we've seen it happen with rest for example like i remember when everyone was oh rest 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 all the time rest everything and now people are graphql oh, i don't use rest rest sucks like use graphql for this and that and it's like 
GraphQL is going to be very uncool in 10 years' time. It'll be something else, probably REST again, or, you know, REST Plus or something. And <laughs> I guess just the older you get, the more you see these kind of loops constantly happening. And, uh, yeah, maybe it gets easier to be a novice as you get older. I don't know. Just throwing that out there. So a couple of points. The sheer volume of, of content coming out, and mm. for me, this is really the value of the newsletters. They provide me with a filter, right? That basically, you know, rather than paying attention to 300 things for that week, I can basically wait for the newsletter, whether it be you know, one of yours or maybe the change log on Sundays or something, and basically just sit down and kind of see what's been going on this week and kind of, you know, even, even further do some selection myself and then say, okay, well, these are the things that I consider to be important these are the things that the peter or the changelog team considers to be important and then uh, i'll take a look right there's just 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 too much right nothing it's not a judgment call on the quality of everything going on it's more like as a human being with a limited amount of time i have 24 hours of the day and a good chunk of it is already spoken for yeah like there's only so much i can you know consume so going back to all the different, you know, sort of the dogma around, oh, you have to be using this thing, or if you're not using this thing, you're doing it wrong, whatever it is. Like, to me, that's part of the noise, right? So I think over time, and maybe this is something that happens to folks who have been doing this for a while, I think over time, my desire to sort of master and like limit the number of things I want to master, be it a programming language or technique or kind of a particular way of doing something, like over time that desire has become stronger because I'm trying to narrow, right? Yeah. Maybe this is like career suicide right, for some people or something, but I'm trying to narrow the things I have to pay attention to because there's just so much of it out there. And I think that newsletters play a role in that. Really for me, that's the value of these content filters. Yeah, I think one way I kind of look at some of that stuff is that I'm trying to be sort of 80th percentile at everything that I can find. Like, I want to be not the best, but just kind of proficient in everything, that I kind of understand the big picture and I can connect a lot of dots together. Whereas I think perhaps you and people who I would consider to be like senior developers or career developers, essentially, want to become kind of 95th percentile or higher at a very small handful of things, um, especially over time. You know, if, you, if you're going into like Postgres consultancy, for example, you want to be in that top 5% of people who know how to use Postgres because otherwise who's going to you know, employ you as a consultant specifically about that thing? I think a lot of developers move down that path and they become very specialized at a handful of things. What that means is that Let's say, and this is where I'm waving my arms in the air just for everyone's kind of benefit who's listening on the podcast. <laughs> if you assume that I've kind of got like a straight line of like my 80th percentile of everything, and then all the different developers have basically got these little peaks that kind of, you know, they're better than me at like a whole bunch of different things. And like in aggregate, my readership is better than me at everything because there's an expert in everything amongst the readership. But the thing is, for each individual person, I'm kind of like... Like if they if they've got this kind of like mountain amongst, the, I'm trying to figure out how best to put this. If they've kind of got these peaks for anything that's outside of their absolute special kind of points, I'm just high enough for them to kind of feel like he kind of has enough of a feel about this. I can kind of trust what he's saying and then build upon that. I can kind of stand on his shoulders on these other topics. So you will know in go. You will be 95% or higher on a small group of things, I assume, like that you are really like 
I'm the S on this thing. I won't be the expert on that, but I will have seen enough of the entire community that I know what tools people are using in all different areas. I know how people are interacting with things like Kafka or Postgres or what the biggest library for talking to MongoDB is, although actually that's a very small number now, but I will have an idea of all these things. So that's why when you come to the newsletter, you can be like, well, okay, like, I'm an expert on this thing and, you know, I don't, I'm going to skip all these articles that I know I don't need to read. But on all these other things, I'm going to trust Peter to be good enough at all these other things. And I think that's the relationship that perhaps people like you have with the newsletters. You, you perhaps not put it into words, but that's how it's kind of seen. Like, I don't have to be the expert at all this stuff. I just have to be good enough that I'm better than you a bunch of stuff. Yeah, that is really interesting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the technical challenges around doing this. Uh, presumably, you've got some tech that you've built yourself or you, you use that uh, makes it happen. How does it actually technically work? Um, oh, there's, there's, there's a lot of moving parts. And I guess this is one of the good things about being a developer myself is that I've managed to just build these parts as I need them. Like, I'm definitely one of those developers who spends two hours writing a script to save myself 10 minutes. I'm <laughs> very much in that group. Just because I know what happens over time. Like, if you have a job that you need to do more than once, you generally need to do it 100 times. So building tools makes sense. So I ended up building tools for doing our booking system for our sponsors and so on. I built our billing system because at the time I built it, there was nothing that could handle all the different weird combinations of VAT and stuff like that that we have to deal with in the UK as a business. Those systems now exist. I could move on to them, but at the time they did not. I built systems for keeping track of projects, for keeping track of different websites, for keeping track of RSS feeds, all of these different things. There's like just tons and tons of tiny apps that we use here at the company. I mean, I don't even touch a lot of them now. Like So like the booking and the billing system and stuff like that is pretty much for use by the people in the company that handle that stuff. Other than that, you know, my, my curators lean heavily on some of the discovery things that I've built, which kind of, you know, scrapes different websites and looks at different projects and things like that. And perhaps one of the more recent ones I built actually was a tool that uses the GitHub GraphQL API it's like a 50-line GraphQL query or something. I had to learn so much ridiculous nonsense to make it work. But what it does is it looks for projects that match a search query that I might give. So I might say, I want all stuff that's to do with Go, or I might want all stuff that's to do with MongoDB. And then it looks for stuff that has a release or a tag within the past X number of days and it brings up the information about the star count, who's watching it, what language it's in, you know, sort of what secondary languages it's in, all that type of stuff. And then works out the version number and all that type of thing. So I can find out literally within seconds now what are all the biggest releases of Ruby libraries on GitHub within the last two weeks. And I have a lot of work to do to go through those and be like, well, actually, this is just a pointless minor release or this is a big deal and you know so on and so forth but at least it gives me the pointers to those things so i have lots of tools of that nature probably another one actually is the system that you know sends the email mm. which is quite an undertaking the thing that runs all the different websites for all the different newsletters so it's actually one app when you go to golangweekly.com or javascriptweekly.com it's actually hitting the same app so managing all of that and all the, the security certificates and stuff and stuff that's yet another job and the editor that we use to put the issues together which is now used by well three of us in the company use it it's basically a live text editor that we can all use at the same time if we wish 
um, so we can actually work on an issue live. It has the, um, we have a kind of like weird version of XML that we use to lay out all our newsletters on the left. Uh, and then on the right, it's the live preview, which we can resize to see what it looks like on mobile and everything, but it's completely live. Like, so as I'm typing, it updates visually what it looks like immediately. So that's why we can do in the newsletter some interesting visual things, like we can include breakout boxes and stuff like that, that for other people, like I've seen a lot of people do newsletters, but they're very formulaic. Like they always look the same every single week. Whereas I can change the layout of the newsletter almost like on a whim. Um, we don't tend to just because of time, but it's possible to do. And so, yeah, I've pretty much built all the tools for this thing and maintain them. And uh, that's pretty much what keeps me in the development world for sort of 50% of what I do is uh, just mucking around with these tools. But there's a lot of parts. So how much of that is in Go? Very little. I have some stuff that does some crawling in Go because it's just very well suited for that uh, task and keeping up with uh, feeds and stuff. But no, principally it's in Ruby because as I say, I am first and foremost a Rubyist. Uh, there's some JavaScript as well, actually, I lie. But yeah, it's principally in Ruby just because I, you know, it's a good fit. Like, it's not like these systems are not designed for hundreds of people to use, so they don't need to scale. So when you don't need to scale, Ruby's a great language. <laughs> you know, it, it, it scales for with me. Like, it's one of those languages that it fits the developer very well. And so, yeah, now I'm on a Go podcast selling the Ruby language to everyone. Um, so, yeah, come back to 2004. It's a great language. <laughs> it is, though, actually. I always think it is. I actually uh, do encourage people to do that as well, though, to go and check out those other languages. I mean, mm. especially one of my favorite things in Ruby was method missing, where it's basically a catch-all method that <laughs> would be called if if the method that they, you'd actually called didn't exist. And yeah. so give it a sort of last chance to parse the string of the method name and <laughs> do something useful with it, <laughs> which is just kind of for, when you think of go and the way go thinks about things that now is so alien it's kind of gone all the way around through ridiculous back to being really awesome again yeah i mean i think of go as being like a a cross between c and python with a good concurrency story that's what its story is in my head that's how i yeah. think about it and so it's used for certain things you know if i wanted to write a port scanner or something to enumerate subdomains or something like that like at scale I would use Go, like it's a natural fit there. But uh, yeah, if it was for building, you know, the sort of things that I build, which are very non-scaling, kind of uh, just slapping text together, uh, a language like Ruby or even Perl, you know, is, is a good fit. Once your assets are generated then, are they kind of dynamically generated from a database, the newsletters on the website, or are they static files that are accessed? When you're looking at the, let's say if you go to like golangweekly.com slash issue issue slash whatever the number we're at, 290, whatever, that is actually being dynamically generated by a Sinatra app. So that's a Ruby app, Sinatra being kind of the inspiration for many a framework actually in other languages mm -hmm. like uh, express.js. But I think the actual issue content is cached. So we, it's not like we have all of those different items in the newsletter aren't stored in like an items table or something and they're all being pulled together on the fly. Like when we produce a newsletter, we produce it. It produces a kind of a text and HTML kind of artifact that then remains forevermore. So that is then what goes into the, the website. Right, I see. So it generates those kind of static assets then, and then that's what gets shipped around, is that right? Yes. So this was a decision I made quite early on, because I realized that doing it in a formulaic way would end up with very formulate results. So I wouldn't be able to very easily put interviews in or just, you know, stick a comic in. Like, so front-end 
Focus, which is one of our newsletters, had a comic just randomly appear in it the other day. And, you know, just chucking random things in is very hard when you make it formulaic. So I was actually thinking more like a publisher than a developer at that point, because the way I look at it is like a clean newspaper page. And I want to put something here and put something here and maybe run a big headline across here. I kind of have that freedom to do that with this. Whereas some of the tools and, you know, I know people that have built some of these uh, curated newsletter tools that are a bit more uh, structured and automated where you can put items in and it, you know, formats and everything, but you can't just randomly throw different types of content in or put multiple column layouts in or stuff like that. And I can just Mm. do that. So I wanted that. And the trick there is that you got that immediate feedback system where you could see the live preview, isn't it? Yeah. That is something I've encountered too, and I think it's a good lesson for everyone, actually. When you give users that immediate feedback from whatever it is they're doing, it means that they're kind of free to be more creative because they can just make mistakes and see it live and they're... You know, if you had to make those changes and then submit it and wait and wait for it to be rendered and then look, you wouldn't do as much. So having that tight loop, I think, is important. That's a lesson I think everyone can learn with their things that they're building at home or at work. Yeah, I think that actually might be one of the slight downsides to Go as a language actually just bringing it back to Go is that Mm. it's a difficult language to have super fast feedback loops with. Now, I imagine some of you might disagree with this because, you know, it's very fast to, you know, compile and run and everything. So in terms of comparing it to say like a C or a C++, okay, yes, it's really quick. But it's not quite the same level as like having a JavaScript sandbox, for example, where you can literally change a number in the you know, in a sandbox environment and see a different result immediately. There is that extra kind of step. But as I say, I think that's, it's its own type of language. It's not designed to be used in perhaps a REPL-y kind of way. I know there are some REPL um, attempts out there, but it's not really designed for that type of use. Easy, just don't make mistakes. Exactly. (laughs) That's one option. But I do think it's like useful to look at things like the Go Playground and to see that, you know, when it was created, they did think about this because... Mm. If you have to install Go and do all this stuff before you can even see your first mistake, it's like, okay, that feedback loop is incredibly slow for your first program. Whereas if you can just go to a website, type in some code and hit run, you know, that actually adds a lot of value. And while it's not the same as a REPL or, or you know, it's like a Rails app where you're seeing things visually changing or like a JavaScript thing where you're just in the browser, I do think that it, you know, it's better than many other you know, compiled static languages that you might see in that sense. Yeah, for systems language, it's very good. Yeah, I mean, I I use unit tests for that purpose. That's probably the primary... When I'm doing something that where TDD is a good fit for it, uh, say I'm going to write a little package that's going to parse some strings, and I know what the input strings are, the valid ones, so I can really unit test that and TDD mm. that quite easily. That's then the feedback loop for me, and it is quick then when you're doing it like that. But yeah, for for visual things or anything, I mean, we don't tend to do too much that's visual. But I've seen some of the graphics things that people are working on, and they do want that feedback loop. We notice it's important to them to have that, because I guess in that world, it does make more sense. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting observation, though. I think this is also why languages like PHP were so good at attracting new developers, was like, you, you know enough to write tests and to use that TDD approach to get instant feedback. But when you're first starting with a language, that's kind of asking a lot to be like, okay, think about what inputs you're going to get and what output you'd expect. Perfect. And they're like, uh, dude, I'm just trying to you know, write a, str- a function that puts a name in a string. That's it. I'm just it. trying to write GTA yeah. 7 here. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, you're giving me all this, oh, you've got to install things, go but, away. But, you know, like with 
with PHP in those languages, you could literally like jump into the server and edit files live and just see them rendered on a website. And it's oh, maybe Lord. not the it's you know maybe it's not the best idea for production type stuff. But I say maybe <laughs> definitely not the best <laughs> idea for that. <laughs> um, Hedging. But whenever you're learning, it, it's a great way to just you know jump into something and instantly see that feedback. And I think that's why some of those languages are so appealing to beginners. And I think JavaScript has that allure where you can just open up the console on any website and, and mess with things. And that's very, very appealing. And I think that at times you'll probably see that Go doesn't attract as many new programmers as, say, JavaScript or some of the other languages because of that. Yeah. I mean, editing working code, I think, is actually a very underrated learning technique. I mean, it's it's way that I've always tended to learn very quickly is if I find a program that works really well. So like when I was trying to learn uh, modern C. So as I said, I did C in the 90s for quite some time, but I didn't touch it for quite a long time after that. And then I kind of came back to it and I was like, oh my God, it's all like, you know, the, I can understand what's going on, but people are laying it out in a different way. They're putting different structures into their programs. And so I looked at code bases like Redis was a really good example of that, the kind of the, the data structure database thing. And the way he wrote that is just very elegant. And I could go in and I could work out how to add a command to it. Uh, and I think I even did a YouTube video about this. I sort of added a command and showed how that all worked and everything. And it kind of really, editing something that already works and is already not perfect, but good, uh, helps me learn, at least. That's a, w a way for me to learn is from examples rather than going from first principles of saying, right, we're going to do pound include stdio.h printf blah, 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 like from scratch again. Because sometimes you might lack the imagination to think, well, what is it that I can build with printing stuff to the screen? I want something that works, and then I'll tweak it, change a few numbers here and there. We deserve a better internet, and the Brave team has the recipe for bringing it to us. Start with Google Chrome, keep the extensions, the dev tools, and the rendering engine that make Chrome great. Rip out the Google bits, we don't need them. Mix in ad and tracker blocking by default, quick access to the Tor network for true private browsing, and an opt-in reward system so you can get paid to view privacy-respecting ads. Then turn around and use those rewards to support your favorite web creators like us. Download Brave today using the link in the show notes and give tipping a try on changelog.com. Peter, when you were talking about like using a book and like that being your, your Bible, essentially, when you're learning a language, mm. it kind of like you bringing this up made me think of that because I remember as I learned, I'd be like, well, do I really understand this? And, you know, that working program that was in the book was the only thing you had to go from. So a lot of the times you'd go through and be like, well, let me try tweaking things. If I wanted to do this, you know, is this the right line to change so that it actually makes those changes? And I think for a lot of people, that's just kind of how they learn is this, it's one you, you write the code and you read through and try to understand what it's saying, but to verify you understand a lot of the times it's, let me change this to see if it actually does what I want. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a few people teach in that way. Um, it's not very common in book form because the problem with books is that, you know, if you, you can't really put a massive program in and say, right, here you go play with this. It's definitely something that actually suits the modern way of you know, having the web and downloading a GitHub project and off you go. Um, and I know that I think Zed Shaw did a little bit of this. Um, he's quite well known in the Python and Ruby spaces uh, with his kind of learn Python the hard way and learn Ruby the hard way. Like it was very driven about doing everything by example. Like he's like, just type this stuff in and you don't have to know exactly what it means, but just do it. And by the fact of doing it, you will eventually learn what it means because it's just how it works. It's like learning a foreign language. You know, they don't teach you 
word by word what everything means. You have sentences and then you kind of derive meanings from it. And so I think that's a really good way to go in learning. Yeah, and when most people join teams, that's what they're doing as well, isn't it? They're starting completely from scratch, yeah. So it does does make sense. I used to copy the code out of Amiga Format magazine (laughs) to build little games and stuff. And then we changed that. We made a pool game once and then we changed the cushions and just made the pockets really big so the game was really easy and just being able to let go and figure out what how these pockets were described in this weird array you know just that process that's kind of went the bit the time when i fell in love with code which was you know when we could i realized we could create things and make things happen using this strange magic spells almost yeah there's a lot to be said for watching other people do things and i guess that is exactly what my job is like i am spending nearly my entire you know job watching what other people are doing and what other people are releasing and kind of turning that into personal wisdom that then i can hopefully use to inspire what it is that i choose to to go into the newsletters yeah that's great how many people does the newsletters reach so we've got a total of uh, about four hundred and eighty thousand subscribers right now of wow. course some of those are subscribed to multiple publications so you know like there's a lot of javascript people on the front end newsletter for example in the node newsletter as well um, i don't actually track the unique number of people just because it doesn't interest me i'm more interested in looking at it from a publisher's point of view in that you know 10 people bought this magazine 10 people bought that magazine i don't care if they're the same 10 people i sold 20 magazines um so (laughs) that's the way i look at it Mm. but what if it was one person buying all 10 magazines you'd want to know about that wouldn't you Uh, i don't know i'd probably be okay with that (laughs) (laughs) that's the publisher in me speaking it's it's all about getting the sales of the uh, the magazines but uh yeah, so I don't know exactly, but I know uh, on Go, for example, it's uh, 29,000. We did actually pass 30,000 briefly, but we've recently been going through a process of deleting people that haven't engaged for a certain amount of time. So that you know, process has knocked uh, a bit off. So we're back to 29,000 again. All right, it's not bad. I thought you were going to say some. you push, posted something someone didn't like, so you lost one. <laughs> and you were like, ah, just, yeah. Just oh, man. Down. I tell you, actually, that's something you need to watch out for. If anyone is listening and you know, ends up doing a newsletter, like, don't look at the number of people that unsubscribe. Like, unless you're literally losing like half your list overnight. Um, I found it's actually a way of people that are new to it actually becoming quite depressed uh, very mm. quickly. Is that they're like, oh, I just sent you know, a newsletter and 10 people unsubscribed. But I'm like, mm. well, you've got 10,000 subscribers. Like, that's a statistical <laughs> anomaly. Like, Perspective. <laughs> exactly. Like, don't even worry about that. It could have been the same person unsubscribing 10 times. <laughs> there you go. So, exactly. I think you also have to view it from, like, your personal perspective. Like, you might be interested in a newsletter, and then a couple weeks later, or maybe a year later, or whatever, mm. you might realize, you know... I've moved on in my roles or I'm not doing the same things. And it's not that I don't like the newsletter. It's just that it's not the right fit for me right now. Yeah. Mm. You know, I think people, like you said, they get upset about stuff like that. But realistically, having people unsubscribe is their way of saying, like, you're not providing me value right now, which is okay. Um, It just means you shouldn't be spending money or, you know, whatever your resources you're spending to send them letters are a waste of your time and their time. So it's like, you know, it's better than doing what you said, where you manually have to go through and like, pull people out who haven't engaged in you know months or however long it's been that takes way more effort than having somebody unsubscribe and do it for you and like you know signal for you that they're not interested anymore yeah i mean sometimes it's not even 
that just that it's also that perhaps they just don't like the way that you present stuff they don't like the layout of your newsletter like it can be something really just someone can have a gut feeling about you and they're just like oh i just don't like this guy i'm just going to unsubscribe like but you have to be okay with that it's like on twitter if you do some tweets and you mention about politics or something and someone unfollows you and says oh i wish you did developer tweets all the time like it's actually not wrong for them to say that but it's also not wrong for them to leave and it's not wrong for you to be like well i don't care like i think we all have to be a little bit more forgiving of each other and a little bit understanding that we can't satisfy everyone and that's definitely true of us like like this is one of the points i put down in my notes like you can never fully saturate an audience i can never reach a hundred percent of all go developers that's just not going to happen you know and i encounter people that like say in the javascript world who you know we've got one hundred and seventy thousand subscribers and i run into people at conferences and stuff and they're like oh i've never heard of javascript weekly and it's like i don't sit there thinking well that's a bit weird like surely everyone knows about us by now because there's millions of javascript developers and there's just all these different pockets of different places that javascript developers don't even know about each other half the time let alone all the different resources that are in the community so there are Mm. definitely go developers who have never heard of this podcast and it's never even crossed their radar and i kind of wonder like do we need to actually improve that or not? Like, it's always good to extend your reach, but is it something that's worth worrying about? And I don't think mm. it is. And, you know, for that reason, that's why I also think it's okay to have multiple versions of the same thing. So you've got Go Time, but then, of course, you know, and I'm not going to name them, but there's other Go podcasts out there. Don't listen to them, in everyone. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. But there's loads of different <laughs> Go podcasts. Um, well, I say loads, like a handful of them. Mm. Um but some of the listeners to some of those other ones won't have heard of GoTime and some of the GoTime listeners won't have heard of some of the other ones. And people relate to different things in different ways, and that's fine. So if people come along and they try and, you know, do another Go newsletter or something like that, it doesn't bother me at all because I know they're going to have their own audience. And they're not just the fact that they exist doesn't going to take away from what I'm doing. Mm. And but the only problem is I think there are some people that haven't had that revelation and they think that perhaps because i've got thirty thousand subscribers they think oh what's the point of me doing something because like he's already Mm. doing it and oh he Mm. sucks and blah 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 and i've had this run in with a guy before who does a go newsletter and he was kind of like having a go at me on reddit and saying oh don't subscribe to it like do subscribe to mine because it's better and i was just like you don't need to be like that like Mm. there's room for everyone you know if your friend says oh i'm gonna go and write a novel about you know a political scandal or something you don't go oh i've got a friend who's also writing a novel about the same thing you must go and get in touch with them and, don't write yours <laughs> yeah exactly write the same novel together you can't compete like it's just not mm. the case so i guess that's something i just really wanted to get across is that if anyone wants to do the same sort of things that i'm doing then by all means go ahead like uh, you know as long as you're not using my name or you know copying every single thing that i do then fine like there is enough audience out there to to warrant it yeah do you have non-english newsletters currently or are you are you even planning on no anything like that no i struggled off with english let alone other languages so uh, <laughs> i must admit i i'm definitely a single language person i knew a tiny bit of french and that's all i know i know there's a huge go community in china i come across their some of their output quite often actually they have github repos of just like long lists of links that they found in the community and stuff and i can't understand a single word of what they're saying of course but <laughs> I know they've got their own things going on over there. And we've had people approach us and sort of say, oh, you know, I'd love to translate the newsletter for such and such a language. But it's literally been a handful of inquiries over, you know, the past however many years. So, 
you know, if there was someone came to us and said, oh, we want to just copy what you do and just translate it into, I know, like say Russian is probably a good example because that's a culture that's just different enough from our culture that they're probably not going to read my newsletter like en masse in Russia because it's his own alphabet. It's, you know, its own culture and everything. And if someone came to me and said that, like, I'd probably be like, yeah, just do it. Like, cause it's, it's not going to affect me in any way. And it just will help, um, mm. help the community, which, you know, is, uh, partly what this is about, you know, it is my business, but at the same time, you know, I, if I just wanted to make money, there's a lot of things I could be doing that I don't do because, uh, you know, it's not right to do. So mm. I am very keen on, you know, helping the community. So if anyone is That's listening great. and you're in a different land, you know, I'm not going to say Australia or something like that, of course, because, uh, <laughs> you know, people from Australia, America, England, Ireland and whatever will all subscribe to the uh, English one. Um, but if you're in a, a different culture, Poland, you know, Saudi Arabia, I don't know, like where is Go popular other than China? Yeah, just get in touch because you know, I'd be interested in seeing you do stuff like that. Great. Yeah, well, first of all, I will actually, I don't know if we thanked you really yet for the work for you, that you and the team put into the newsletter. It really is a resource that is valuable for everyone. I mean, uh, I'm sure I speak for everyone. You mentioned not satisfying everyone and not being able to satisfy everyone. Mm. And that brings us neatly to our new regular slot, Unpopular Opinions. Oh, unpopular Opinions. I actually think you should probably leave. Oh, unpopular Opinions. So, Peter, maybe you could kick us off and give us an unpopular opinion. Well, I spend a lot of time on Hacker News. That's probably an unpopular opinion Ooh. straight away. Um, <laughs> I spend a lot of time on Hacker News and Twitter and stuff like that. And I always see whenever the topic of advertising comes up, people absolutely lose it. Like they're like, oh, I hate being tracked. I hate clicking. I never click on a banner ad. I've never clicked on an advert in my life. When the TV comes on, I close my eyes when the adverts <laughs> come on. Like <laughs> yeah. now, I think this is an unpopular opinion amongst geeks mm. but is actually not a controversial opinion in that this is actually how the world works and that is that advertising is generally or can be a force for good and i know that's a, a slightly controversial statement considering just how badly it's been used by so many companies and so many media mm. but i think that if you are a ethical person and you approach it ethically then advertising is actually better than most of the alternatives. And just to give a quick example of that, I've had people come to me and say, oh, it really sucks that you have to run sponsors in the newsletters. You should let us pay whatever uh, per month and you know do it that way. It'd be much more honourable and you're a bad person for having adverts in there. And I've researched it and I've looked at case studies and other industries where people have done this. And the best I can make out, and I've looked at other newsletters, developer newsletters that have done this as well. The best I can make out is perhaps I would convert three, four, maybe 5% of the audience to paying me a pittance each month. And it would pay quite well because three to four or 5% of my subscriber base is quite a lot. But my newsletters would then only be reaching 5% of the people they do now. Mm. And I don't think that has a good enough effect on the world or the community as a whole than if I let everyone have what I have and there happens to be some sponsors which are clearly marked you know don't do any kind of like onerous tracking or third party you know 
whatevers, all that type of nonsense. We don't sell our lists to them, all that type of stuff. And so I actually think the way that if you can do advertising ethically, it's better than the alternative, which is paying for stuff. That is very interesting. Uh, I think of that that sponsorship model as well when it comes to conferences. It's very common for conference, you people pay for the tickets, but the prices would be a lot higher if it didn't have any sponsorship there. So it's actually a good one because you're right. I think if you ask people generally, they'll say, I hate ads or... <laughs> but, See, yeah. it's a challenging subject because generally speaking, I think people want things as free as advertising makes it but they don't want the advertising. And it's like, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you've got to kind of choose. And I get that there are cases where, you know, people are overly zealous and they track you and they do all these things that you really don't want them to do. And that can be troublesome. But then there's also cases like you said, where conferences are cheaper, um, newsletters are made available or, you know, like this podcast is possible because we have advertisers. Um, you know, otherwise a lot of this stuff would be very hard to do. We wouldn't have people to edit the show and, and do different things like that. So I, I can imagine this podcast would be a very different thing if we had to charge everybody. And it would also make the people that you can reach, like it would limit it so much. Like you could no longer help people who are, you know, struggling to get into tech from, you know, a rougher background or, you know, maybe they have a job that doesn't pay that well. And I think, you know, being able to reach those people is worth it in many cases. But I do agree with you, Peter, that you kind of have to approach it ethically. You can't just be like, you know, let me just track everything, do whatever, and just abuse all of my readers or listeners or whatever they happen to be. Yeah, you don't support advertising smoking to kids, do you, for example? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've had a few interesting run-ins, actually. The only one I can think of, actually, that we had a bizarre run-in with was uh, we had a company that I'm not going to name because even their name is actually a little bit suspect, but they were basically a company that offers sexual services online um and they were advertising a job with us now i was a bit like mm, like i wouldn't link to them as a service because it doesn't make any sense but since they're trying to hire a javascript developer like let's go with it and they they were quite subtle in the way they worded it and everything and one of the people in the javascript world just got absolutely you know went absolutely bonkers because he's like oh this is encouraging and it was actually about a particular fetish so that's just to kind of give you an idea um he's like oh this fetish is absolutely wrong and like even if people consent it's actually not good and blah 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 and you shouldn't be running their ads or whatever and, and you should have strong types in your language and that yeah. sort of, <laughs> mm-hmm. that sort of thing <laughs> exactly it's the not, it's the not a number fetish mm-hmm. yeah i've heard so of it yeah we do tend to steer clear of that sort of thing now we've kind of learned a few things <laughs> about like even if i agree with it like the optics can be a little bit weird on things like that but hmm. yes there is there's definitely a lot of ethical issues that you have to to figure out and you know one of the things i think that we do is other than you know we obviously abide by all the laws which are now quite a, you know it's quite a lot of them with the whole gdpr thing especially here in the eu oh sorry i say here yep. in the eu Whoops. i'm no longer in the eu yeah. um <laughs> i keep forgetting but um <laughs> yeah don't get me started on that one too soon <laughs> you can tell by the screams in the street yeah <laughs> so we abide by That's stuff what like that, that. Is. <laughs> yeah. so, so are you trying to tell me that like all of the uk was just like you know what we don't want to do this gdpr thing we're going to go ahead and just leave yeah we're going to well, purge instead it's still the law but uh yeah so we i mean we abide yeah. by all that sort of stuff but the other thing that i've always been really keen on doing is making sure that we aren't, aren't outpricing the startups and we aren't outpricing the small sponsors and that's been mm. really important to me because we've had people like and 
this isn't so true in the Go world. This is more true in the JavaScript world. Uh, we've had a couple of like independent companies that were very, very small kind of build off of the back of our audience uh, and become popular with our audience. And then they've grown and grown and stayed customers just by virtue of that. Um, so Front End Masters is a good example of that. They're kind of like a screencast type training website. Um, and there's a JavaScript tool called Wallaby.js, which is like a live coding debugging thing. You know, and they've had the same experience. And we had, in our early days, we had IBM uh, come to us, or sorry, their marketing agency came to us and said, look, we want to buy out all the inventory on all of your newsletters, but we have to spend at least $100,000 a month. Like, we can't spend less than that because otherwise it's just completely waste of, you know, it's not worth our time. And I looked at the inventory I had and it was worth like, you know, a percentage of that. And I'm like, okay, even if I marked it all up and I said, yeah, here you go, it's going to cost you $100,000 a month. Do I want IBM Cloud as every single sponsor over every single thing? For me, that's an ethical, that's the sort of ethical decision I have to make. I have to think I could sell this inventory for tons and tons of money, like say double what I make now and have one company plastered everywhere that, you know, who cares about IBM Cloud? Like, I mean, IBM Cloud is a good thing, um, but it's not something you want to see week in, week out. Like, you know, it's just one service amongst many that people want to consider. Um, and that's what I want the newsletters to be. So when sponsors go in, I want them to be sponsors that people can look at and say, actually, I am interested in checking that out because it's a different thing each week. Um, we, you know, we try not to let people run sponsorships back to back. Um, and because it's relevant to me, because it's teaching me something or because it's a service that's like a hosting company that maybe I need a new host, I'll check them out. I want them to be things like that. I want them to be indie developers. I want them to be startups. And that is definitely an ethical decision I made is that, you know, as separate from all the tracking and all that sort of stuff, it's that the sponsors are actually good. And I know that's also something that's happened here with the changelog is that, you know, you've got sponsors like Linode, for example, they're good companies. They're good companies that are worth checking out and are actually relevant to our day-to-day -day jobs. They're not just some enterprise play that we're only, you know, going to recommend if we've got like a million dollar budget to play with. So whenever you say like you try to keep it approachable for like the smaller players, like the indie developers or the startups, do you have to do anything else? Like, let's say you have a mailing list that's 200,000 people. You probably have some set price for like a job listing. Mm. Do you have to do anything special to try to make that accessible? Or is it just certain types of uh, spots? We've not really got to that point. Um, so okay. JavaScript Weekly is our biggest publication with 170,000. And so that does have a price premium upon it. But I would say actually, and this is part of the whole pricing thing I mentioned before, is that if you scaled up one of our smaller publications to the same size as JavaScript Weekly, the amount you'd be paying if you applied that multiple would be a lot more than we actually charge. So we undercharge on JavaScript Weekly, and I don't want to say we overcharge on the others, but you know we charge more healthily on the smaller publications. So we've got like a, a database publication, for example, that only has fifteen thousand subscribers. You know, but because the database space is awash with money, let's say, and you know it's uh, a a relatively small space, kind of, like in terms of the sponsors, there's more competition for wanting to appear in the newsletter. So we can charge a premium there, whereas with JavaScript Weekly, less so. One of the things I guess I'm thinking about is that you have the added benefit of you send letters out to people uniquely and you have sort of control over what you're sending to each person. Mm. Whereas like for a podcast, for instance, they insert the ads, then like they put it out to distribution channels and you can't really dynamically insert an ad for each person. That, and I'm not, I don't even mean tracking. I mean, like, let's say you have 170,000 people 
and you wanted to sell, okay, well, we'll give your job ad to 25,000 of our subscribers and you can sort of pull for that jobs like that ad listing with maybe five other advertisers. Does that make sense? We have the technology to do that. It's only ever come up in one context with a sponsor, and that was where they're saying, oh, we're an Israeli company. We want to advertise our job just to the Israeli you know, people. The only problem with that is that in that situation, we looked at the numbers and we worked out, okay, like 1% of our audience is from Israel, or it was probably less than that. And it's like, do I really want to charge, like, even if I charge them double, do I want to charge them 2% of our normal pricing to, to go through all that effort and then not have it appear in the main one like I'm, it just seems pointless so we're not at the scale to do that or something that small you almost have to charge them the regular price and just say we'll limit it to just the, or, you know maybe like half price or something because of the amount of effort and overhead i guess i was just thinking you know keeping things accessible and making it so startups and smaller indie people can access it looking into like those pooling options and things like that are unique approaches i think yeah, we're not quite there with that. I mean, we have the tech to do it, but we're not quite there. If we were like, you know, have millions of subscribers to a single newsletter, then obviously that would be very pressing. But then part of the problem with that is that you, people are going to start wanting targeting at that point. So they'll say we want to reach certain companies or it's very easy nowadays to actually take email addresses and turn those into names, uh, occupations and stuff like that. There's companies out there like Clearbit, for example, you throw emails at them and you get data back. And we began doing some of that. This is pre-GDPR. We began doing some of that so that we could kind of build together audits of who our subscribers are, like what countries they're from, what companies they work for, and all that type of thing. But we've since discarded that data because it just doesn't fit ethically with how I see things going data-wise. Like, it's nice to know that we have a bunch of people from Microsoft, you know, subscribe to us. But you can kind of tell that from the email addresses. Like, I don't need to run all this weird, clever stuff over it. So yes, it's possible to do that slicing and dicing, but both for demand reasons and ethical reasons, yeah, it's it's not something we really do. And I don't, I wouldn't want to run a different ad to like different blocks of the the subscriber base because I think a bit like a magazine, like a copy of Vogue, for example, like you'll open it up and there'll be you know a big thing in there for Prada, let's say. That's part of the experience. Like the fact that they're there, it says something about Prada and they want to be in there. And so the fact that you open up a Go newsletter and you see a certain company is the primary sponsor, I actually want that almost to be a talking point in its own right. Now, I'm not big-headed enough to think that people are sitting on Twitter going, oh, did you see the top sponsor in Go this week? It's fantastic. But there is still a kind of a narrative there that you can have with sponsors and say, look, you are the sponsor. like, mm. And that's actually worth it to them. That's really interesting to learn about. Uh, it's the sort of thing I never really consider. Uh, well, Peter, we could talk to you all night, but unfortunately that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much to our special guest, Peter Cooper. If you want to get the Go Weekly newsletter, go to golangweekly.com. You can sign up there. And we'll see you next time on Go Time. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Peter Cooper for joining us and for all the awesome work he puts in the Golang Weekly. This episode was hosted by Matt Ryer with panelists John Calhoun and Johnny Borsico. It was produced by me, Jared Santo, with music by the beat freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. We're brought to you by awesome sponsors. Thanks to Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar for helping us do what we love to do. Oh, one more thing. Do you have an unpopular tech opinion that you'd like to share? Tweet it to us at GoTimeFM and we may read it and respond on a future episode. Thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you next time.
feel like I'm a tech support person where like, have you tried restarting your modem? <laughs> it's like, no, the phone line has a, a tree in it. Like, that's not the issue. Everyone's a tech support person when it comes to video conferencing. Yeah. And families. <laughs> it's like other people's showers as well. I always oh, noticed. Very true. That there was so complicated. <laughs> Every Christmas, I get mad at my brother-in-law because he comes home, he gets his mom some fancy new technology, then he goes back to California. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving you to deal like with before the set up, Like, he'll like, get it set up, sort of. And then, like, she calls me, how do I do this? And I'm like, I don't have that oh, no. thing. I don't have a clue. <laughs> Where do I get games from my Switch? 